This week on The Rail Splitter, the Abraham Lincoln Podcast, we are talking about Abraham Lincoln and the Supreme Court. to the rail splitter the abraham lincoln podcast my name is jeremy with me this evening our rail splitter nick what's up podcast universe and rail splitter mary hey all you awesome rail splitters all right so hopefully you all had a happy and safe fourth of july or independence day in the states or canada day on monday if you're listening to us from canada or whatever july based holiday is going on in your neck of the globe uh, but um, we are today going to talk about Abraham Lincoln's uh, relationship with the Supreme Court. But before we do so, Nick just spent some time in beautiful Montana. How was that trip, Nick? Yeah, it was awesome. I mean, uh, you know, big sky country, Glacier National Park is the place to go. I uh, saw some wildlife, got within about 25 yards of a black bear, um, probably too close. Um, yeah, just did some hiking, looked at some animals, plants, landscape, hung out at the bonfire, you know, all that good stuff. So, yeah, it was nice to get away. Wasn't really in touch with the news, which was beneficial. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's kind of, you know, living life out in the woods. Yeah, so if you haven't been there, I suggest everybody should definitely make a journey. Um, if you love to hike, great place to go hike. Um, if you just kind of like to look, um, great. One of the most scenic routes you could ever take is the road to the sun right through the park. Um, yeah, so I'd encourage you to go. Excellent. Cool. Uh, I have, <clears throat> excuse me, I've been out there as well. Uh, my brother got married out there, I don't know, probably seven years ago. Um, and it's a, the most beautiful place I've ever been. It is a... Uh, very rail splitter-esque national park because I believe it is in the United States and in Canada, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, just like our awesome. show. <laughs> uh, so, Mary, how was your uh, Canada Day celebration? Um, it, I was actually all weekend was tweeting about the 155th of Gettysburg. Um, so I, I did go to the fireworks uh, that were in my town on June 30th, the night before Canada Day, and they had a very brilliant display uh, down at the beach, and it was nice to go down there and just cool off. I live about a 10-minute walk from Lake Huron, um, so it was very nice to go down there. We sat with friends, got to talk and all that, um, and then my town does have a parade on July the 1st, but it was way too hot to... I did not want to leave the house. It was too hot, so I was tweeting about the 155th of Gettysburg, all weekend which i very much enjoyed doing it was a lot of it was very interesting i learned a lot about the battle yeah and i enjoy those tweets as well so thank you for doing that um and as this episode posts um i'm in my home as we record it but i will be in gettysburg or either either in gettysburg or in richmond virginia after spending a day in gettysburg uh, on thursday uh, because after we celebrate independence day i'm going to Take the family on the old Griswold-style family road trip to uh, Gettysburg and then uh, Richmond, and we're going to end up in North Carolina. So very excited for that. Um, I had a lovely weekend in Chicago for um, my wedding anniversary. is also on July 1st, as well as Canada Day. So uh, we celebrated our 12th anniversary in the stifling heat at Wrigley Field, which was awesome because the Cubs won. And then we took in a show at Second City, which if you're ever in Chicago, check that out. Uh, and I had every intention of going to two Lincoln sites and decided not to uh, because it was my wedding anniversary. And you need to do these things, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, when, you know, relationships are about compromise. <laughs> anyway, there's plenty of time for that and we'll get to it. So a uh, lot of news uh, about the Supreme Court lately. So we thought it would be an apropos time to do a, an episode on Lincoln and the Supreme Court. Uh, because he had a very, as, as many presidents do, um, interesting relationship with the Supreme Court. So we'll talk about it. 
Um, and I uh, am going to start the conversation off um, recently in the news uh, about the Supreme Court, specifically with regard to the decision about the wedding cake, um, the baking scenario where a wedding, uh, a bakery wanted to refuse service to a same-sex couple who are celebrating uh, their marriage. And the Supreme Court said that that business had a right to refuse their request to do business with them and make a same-sex marriage cake. Um, and then the Supreme Court decision that upheld the so-called Muslim travel ban um, that said that it is actually, the Supreme Court ruled that it is within the rights of the federal government to ban certain countries from entering, people from certain countries from entering the United States. Um, both of those cases in various articles that I've read referenced the Dred Scott decision as um, that, that this will go down similarly as the Dred Scott decision has gone down. I also believe that it is impossible and wouldn't make any sense to talk about Abraham Lincoln and the Supreme Court as a president without first talking about the Dred Scott decision because his uh, interpretation of it, his work with it, uh, his reaction to it are very important to how he, I think, handled the Supreme Court as president and the decision itself was a very, very significant catalyst um, for two things. One, the Civil War in many obvious ways, but also it, um, I believe, played a huge role in bringing the Republican Party and abolition, um, it kind of lit a fire under the abolitionists and, and really encouraged them and they kind of coalesced around the issue and that brought the Republican Party some more strength which of course then led to Abraham Lincoln winning the presidency in 1860. Uh, so a little bit of background on the Dred Scott case. If you are not familiar, this was a Supreme Court case that went down in 1857, just three years before the 1860 election, just one year before um, Abraham Lincoln ran for Senate against Stephen A. Douglas. Um, so an interesting and important crossroads in history Dred Scott was a slave. Uh, he um, was enslaved by a man by the name of Dr. John Emerson, who was actually with the U.S. Army. Um, he eventually moved uh, Scott to a, an Army base in Wisconsin Territory. Um, and we all know that Wisconsin was not a slave state, and it could not have been a slave state based on the Missouri Compromise. Um, so Dred Scott lived there for four years. Um, much of that time he actually hired himself out and earned, um, earned a wage while Emerson was doing army work. Um, then uh, they moved around a little bit and, and Emerson died in 1843, uh, leaving Dred Scott and his wife and children um, in, in the eyes of the law anyway as property. Um, so he had saved up because he had worked enough in the north, he had saved up enough to buy his freedom. Um, and when he tried to, uh, the person who inherited, in a way, the, or at least um, continued to enslave Dred Scott, um, would not let him purchase his own freedom. Um, so he sued, basically saying that um, because he lived in a free state, um, he should be considered free. So in 1850, the state court declared that Scott was free, but then um, Mrs. Emerson, or Mrs. Emerson, excuse me, who owned him, uh, remarried somebody named Sanford. Uh, leave it, or sorry, then he, she left her property to somebody named Sanford, who continued to try to enslave Dred Scott and his family. Um, he sued uh, again to try to, um, or he the the because they, they would not relinquish his property. Um, the, that decision of being appealed to the Missouri Supreme Court, which overturned the lower, court, lower court's decision and said that Dred Scott still needed to be enslaved, that he was still the legal property of Sanford. So Scott filed another lawsuit in federal court uh, claiming damages against Sanford um, for Sanford's physical abuse against him and for his refusal to allow him to buy his own freedom. Um, the jury ruled that Scott could not sue in federal court because he was a slave under Missouri law. That went all the way to the Supreme Court, which reviewed the case in 1856. Um, and then in 1856, 
um, the they heard the case and the judgment came down in 1857 that um, their official ruling was that Dred Scott they ruled against him and the rationale was that he didn't even have the right to sue because black people were not considered citizens and you had to be a citizen to sue um, so in effect what the um, court case determined was uh, the Dred Scott, regardless of where he was in the United States, because he was once owned by another person, he uh, would then be a slave uh, forevermore. And then it was um, a decision that was very famously, um, the opinion was very famously written by the Chief Justice of the United States, Roger B. Taney, uh, in a very, very uh, racist and, and pretty, pretty ugly um, write-up about the decision. So what were the ramifications of this? There are, there are many and they are very far-reaching, but as far as the case goes itself, um, essentially it, was, it struck a huge blow to abolition. It struck a huge blow to the possible um, kind of gradual abolition that a lot of folks were hoping for. It also uh, played a lot of, put, put a lot of fear into people who were worried about what would happen in the territories. Would the territories uh, have slavery or not? Um, so I don't know if I left anything out about the case itself, um, but before I, I kind of wanted to share some thoughts, but I, want, I didn't want to dominate the conversation too too much. So Mary or Nick, did you have any thoughts about the case itself? I think it's one of those things that is important to know. And by the way, that was an excellent summary of it. Um, I think you hit all the main points of it. And I think it's something that um, those of us who study Lincoln and who study the Civil War that we should know the case um, because it is one of those things that it's an event that to me anyway is one of those things that is leading up to the Civil War and it's something that needs to be understood and studied. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree with everything that's been stated so far. I think that it's, um, the reason that it's fascinating to me is that um, I think that, and a, and a lot of times I think sometimes people m overlook this, but um, I think it really gets to the bottom of the motivation of a lot of pro-slavery people, mm -hmm. um, especially when you talk about states' rights. So a lot of people who fought for the Confederacy, a lot of people in the Confederacy, a lot of current supporters still of the Confederacy say that it wasn't about slavery, it was about states' rights. And it was about the, the, the right of the state to determine for itself what their laws were going to be. Um, and I was kind of looking around, it's not a very commonly held um, interpretation of this case, but I've kind of had the thought earlier today, like, this really seems like it would be antithetical to that, right? Like, what they're saying is that uh, Dred Scott was a slave no matter where he went. So um, it really, Wisconsin's as a state, their their laws did not um, apply. Um, this almost seems like a blow to states' rights, saying that it's not, the states don't have the right that we will determine as the federal government that um, an enslaved person is an, an enslaved person no matter what. Um, so I think that it was kind of, you know, it kind of ran counter to that. Uh, but I also believe that the whole states' rights argument doesn't really hold a whole lot of weight for a whole lot of anything. Um, especially as time goes by, we still hear that it should be up to the states um, with a lot of a lot of issues that are looked at as civil liberties, specifically abortion, same-sex marriage. A lot of people who are, um, you know, against choice and against same-sex marriage kind of say that it should be up to the states to determine, um, which, you know, to me hides behind the issue in a way. So this Dred Scott decision, to me, it, it, it really kind of flies in the face of that whole states' rights argument because what the Supreme Court said was nationwide, regardless of the state, black people can't sue, regardless if a state says you're a citizen of the state or not. So the federal government, in this case, I think really, really um, very definitively said uh, it is not up to the states in this case. Um, black people are not citizens, and they cannot sue. Um, so... Uh, because the court uh, viewed the slaves as property, um, the Fifth Amendment then would forbid Congress from, Congress from taking away property from the individuals. Um, there was a strong dissent, but it was a 5-2 to two decision. 
Um, and it really, really touched off. It was very much a turning point, I think, similar to like, similar to John Brown, similar to John Brown at um, his, um, his up, the uprising that he led, similar to Bleeding Kansas as kind of these really tipping point type moments toward leading us, uh, leading the United States to civil war. Um, one thing that jumped out at me was Tawny in the decision um, said, uh, speaking about African Americans, whether they were free um, or slave, that they could not be citizens of any state, that they were, quote, of an inferior order and altogether unfit to associate with the white race. So this is, this is the, Supreme, or the Chief Justice of the United States um, saying this. Um, he also wrote to Franklin Pierce, who was a former president at the time, um, saying that he believed, um, talking about the decision in Dred Scott, that Tawney believed abiding, with abiding confidence that this act of my judicial life will stand the test of time and the sober judgment of the country. He could not have been more wrong, which is good. <laughs> um, but it was, uh, to me, I, I was very um, fascinated by the fact that he would write that of all the things he did in his judicial life, that this would stand the test of time. Um, how completely tone deaf he was to where the direction the country was going because this really um, lit a fire underneath um, the abolitionist movement in many ways. Um, so this is where we kind of see, and I did a little bit of reading on Roger Tawney, and we talked about him in the habeas corpus episode as well. Um, and this, you know, talking about the Supreme Court, this episode may actually be a nice companion to that habeas corpus episode because we're going to learn a little bit more about why Abraham Lincoln completely ignored the Supreme Court. Um, but this decision right here is where Tawney really asserts himself as a pro-slavery um, justice, and, um, and this decision of the Supreme Court really really put us on the path towards civil war. I, I agree with all you said about it, and one thing that I was just kind of thinking about um, is how much you know, with this decision, how much personal opinion came into it or belief as opposed to just, I think, cause I'm looking at it from 2018, you know, how can you say that somebody's not a person, but then there's Roger T Taney. He's, you know, he's, he was Southern, was he not? Um, Maryland, I believe. Maryland. So he's from a slave state. And he's upholding what he's always known to be, which is, you know, that owning slaves, owning people was a right. And I'm wondering how much personal decision comes into some of these decisions that are made, especially this one here. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he was um, the, the son of slaveholders. Mm -hmm. um, he um, was kind of not real outspoken on the issue. Um, his path to the Supreme Court, um, he was nominated by Andrew Jackson, and the Senate declined, uh, did not confirm him, like he lost the confirmation fight, uh, to be a, an associate justice on the Supreme Court. And then one, just one year later, there was a death on the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. so Andrew Jackson nominated him again, but this time some midterm elections had happened, um, and he was actually then approved uh, by the Senate to, to be the Chief Justice of the United States. And um, he actually served for nearly 30 years, um, and he was preceded by John Marshall. So looking at Supreme Court history, I think that it's important to note that um, John Marshall was the Chief Justice from 1801 to 1835, and then uh, Roger Taney was uh, Chief Justice until 1864. So you have... Um, a stretch of, uh, and at that time, the country was only, what, 100 years old, not even, the country was, what, 90, less than 90 years old, and 60 of those years, you only had two chief justices. So um, where, and we'll get to this a little bit later with Lincoln at a crossroads, kind of with the Supreme Court, that's a really long time for mm. a very small number of people to have that amount of authority, especially um, in, in the United States, who was very afraid of you know, kind of never-ending terms. You know, the United States has always kind of wanted frequent elections and was, was adverse to having people in power for an extended period of time. Um, but this case is really the one that was kind of a turning point in his career, um, in, or at least his tenure as Chief Justice, um, where he uh, kind of asserted that pro-slavery um, 
feeling. Now, Maryland was a border state. He did not step down from the Supreme Court during the Civil War. Um, some justices from the South did, and we'll also talk about that in a little bit later on in the show. Um, but I think um, Tawny's kind of reputation uh, for being um, a pro-slavery justice and someone who um, definitely was kind of a someone who pushed along the, that agenda and expedited the onset of the Civil War, I think is well-earned. I don't think that's overstated. Um, and uh, Abraham Lincoln really did not like him, uh, which is important as well. So we'll get to Lincoln's interpretation of, of the decision. Uh, any comments on the case itself um, or Roger Taney's role in it? Well, I think it's kind of Roger Taney's opinion and specifically that um, that blacks could not be citizens that mm -hmm. really drove Lincoln um, against that. You know, I, I think he respected the Supreme Court to the point where, you know, that, that they had the right to determine an individual case that comes before them. All right. And that America must accept that decision in that case. However, you know, the second role that the Supreme Court does is it kind of indicates how the public should act in similar cases. And then I think the key word he kind of latches onto is should. You know what I mean? Um, just because they ruled this way in one case doesn't mean it's a guarantee that this is how it's got to be forever. Um, you know, he definitely didn't believe that the Supreme Court trumped the Constitution. You know, the Constitution was supreme to the Supreme Court. I think sometimes people tend um, to view that the Supreme Court has the final say and stuff, but um, Lincoln definitely didn't view it that way. So I, I really think the idea that, you know, Otani's basically saying, you know, blacks can't be citizens and we can't, and that, and Lincoln thought Congress had the right to stop the expansion of slavery as well. And that's kind of where he disagrees with the outcome of the Dred Scott case, at least I believe, um, based on looking some stuff. Yes, that's a great point. Um, Lincoln, um, really immediately after, not immediately after, he actually stayed silent on the Dred Scott case for about two or three months. And then he came out um, and spoke against it. Um, and he did so very much as a lawyer, more than as a politician. He kind of broke down the legal argument of it. Um, and I think Lincoln's relationship with the court is summed up very well in what you just said, Nick. He believed in constitutional supremacy and not judicial supremacy. And I think that this is important to note that early on in American history, and really the Civil War was fairly early on. I mean, it's you know less than 100 years after the Declaration. Um, a lot of that stuff was still sorting, sorting itself out. The Supreme Court, more than any other, the judiciary, more than any other branch, really didn't have a real defined role in the Constitution. And it wasn't until John Marshall established judicial review um, that that even kind of became a role of the Supreme Court when he declared a law unconstitutional. Um, and then the Supreme Court kind of got got a lot of power. So the Supreme Court is kind of like an, like a it kind of resembles the parliamentary style of government in, in the UK where there's no real written written um, constitution. I mean, there's, there, are, there are some, but like it's kind of based on precedent and it's based on tradition and it's based on years and years and years of established um, practice um, based on precedent. The Supreme Court is very similar where it's very, very much based on precedent. Well, Lincoln's interpretation of it was that their decision should only apply to the courts, to the cases themselves, that they, that they should not be taken to the national level or they should not be precedent setting forever. Um, this is one area where Lincoln has kind of, history has kind of gone against Lincoln. The Supreme Court now makes decisions that set precedent until another decision overturns it, right? So like if, if the Supreme Court declares something to be constitutional or unconstitutional, any law like it is very likely to also get overturned because people in lower courts will just reference those Supreme Court cases and because the court upheld it, that's the interpretation of the Constitution and that goes on the books. So um, Lincoln trying to trying to discredit this, um, the Dred Scott situ uh, situation and kind of how it kind of started to snowball into this major slavery issue, basically said, like, yeah, in this specific case, the Supreme Court, we have to abide by it. Dred Scott, as a person specifically, must still be enslaved. However, that does not mean anything for anyone else. 
um, which is kind of a tough looking at it in 2018. It's very difficult to, to make that leap because Supreme Court decisions now are precedent setting very much so, and most people accept that precedent. Lincoln was not willing to do that, and I think part of the reason he was not willing to do that was because they missed this decision so badly that he disagreed with this so wholeheartedly and it was so obvious to him. Um, and what he said was that what his what that decision did was it showed that Tawney and the justices who voted with him their interpretation of the Declaration. Um, of independence treated it as no more than a quote interesting memorial of a dead past um, and they took it took away its vitality and practical value and left it without a germ or even a suggestion of the individual rights of man in it so then he he asserted lincoln asserted that the declaration of independence was written for all time and that those who wrote it the framers meant to declare the right so that the enforcement of it might allow as fast as circumstances permit. So what he's saying is that, th that this is a declaration of rights for all men, including people who are enslaved and including um, black people. Um, and he was claiming that Tawney just completely ignored that. Um, and then he even said that Tawney believed that the, the declaration, that Lincoln believed the declaration was sacred um, and called it an apple of gold in a frame of silver, meaning the Constitution. That's a very interesting point about Lincoln, is his reverence for the Declaration of Independence he, he thought that that was a more important document than the Constitution itself. He felt that the Declaration of Independence was the most important founding document that we have, um, which is fitting that it's the week of 4th of July and the anniversary of its signing. Um, and that's why he quoted it uh, as often as he did. Um, and in his most famous speech, obviously, he quotes the, the Declaration of Independence, um, and specifically the all men are created equal part. No, I mean, you, I think you see, you definitely see that in multiple speeches he gives. He references the Declaration of Independence, uh, especially when he's, you know, arguing over the citizen, or when he's making this case for citizenship um, and getting rid of slavery. So, yeah, I agree with that 100%. Yep, I do too. Um, so, so what he, um, and, and I think that it, that, and the reason we're spending so much time on Dred Scott is because I think that this is the case that kind of solidifies that in Lincoln, and it really informs how he acts as president. Um, also, it all, it very much plays right into his rise as a statewide figure in Illinois who people wanted to listen to, but also very, very specifically as an opponent and a rival of Stephen A. Douglas. Because this speech that he gave about Dred Scott was in immediate response to uh, a speech that Stephen A. Douglas made. Um, not immediate, like he stood up right after Douglas was done, but Douglas made the speech, and Lincoln went home, drafted a rebuttal, um, and issued it. So this was kind of almost the first uh, informal, not the first, but one of the first significant informal and public uh, debates that Douglas had with Lincoln, and the speech by Lincoln got some press, at least locally. Uh, so kind of one of the speeches that was um, signifying his emergence back on the scene uh, prior to his um, nomination for the Senate race. No, I agree. I mean, Dred Scott definitely sets kind of his view on how he's going to view the Supreme Court. Definitely when he's in presidency, it kind of lays the foundation for him and his Stephen Douglas' rivalry. You know, in a lot of ways, kind of the start of his presidency. Um, you know, laying at least uh, the roots of it um, into where he goes and how he views stuff, um, for sure, at that time. Mm -hmm. Yep, for sure. Um, and I think that the uh, that act of looking at the Supreme Court as being able to make decisions, kind of as they do now, with such sweeping authority, he believed was antithetical specifically to the Declaration of Independence, but also the Constitution. Um, and he, he felt that it would be um, a mistake to kind of blindly follow them. So, you know, and we've seen it many times, um, and hopefully we're seeing it now. Um, the most famous is probably Plessy versus Ferguson that... Um, from 1896, where uh, the doctrine of separate but equal became the law of the land in many ways, and an accepted constitutional way to make laws. Uh, Jim Crow was very much um, based upon the separate but equal doctrine, and it was a decision made by the Supreme Court that was precedent-setting and existed from 1896 all the way up till 1954, when it was struck down by Brown versus the Board. 
Um, and Brown versus Board even still has kind of some uh, language in it with all deliberate speed, I believe, is the one that we look at now where the Supreme Court said that um, that all state agencies, all state governments had to desegregate um, any publicly held areas, um, specifically schools, with all deliberate speed, which in many cases meant not at all, you know, in their interpretation. So I think that that was another kind of, um, you know, open to interpretation where they look at what the Supreme Court says in their interpretation of the Constitution. Um, and Dred Scott was certainly one of those. Um, I also think that it was that it was an important decision that led to the adoption of the 14th and 15th Amendments, mm-hmm. uh, because when you pass when you ratify an amendment, that is literally part of the Constitution. It is um, it is not something in addition to. Um, it is as much a part of the Constitution as the Articles. So many, 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 many uh, civil rights court cases since the language in the Constitution that they reference is going to be the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment. Um, specifically the 14th most often. Um, so I think that that's important to note as well that um, the abolition of slavery by constitutional amendment, I think, was very much influenced by that Dred Scott decision, by Lincoln not wanting to do it by law, but do it by constitutional amendment because that's much more permanent and it becomes part of the Constitution. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking about all this and like the Supreme Court getting it wrong. I feel like when the Supreme Court and the judicial branch gets it wrong, it's the hardest and takes the longest to fix. Mm-hmm. Um, because, yeah. you know, you, you elect a Congress uh, men or woman, um, you know, especially if they're House of Representatives, you get it wrong, you got two years to get mm-hmm. it right. Mm-hmm. You know, Senator six, President four, they got term limits now on them. You know, the Supreme Court, uh, that takes time. I mean, you think Plessy versus Ferguson, that took a long time. Dred Scott didn't, but, you know, you had the Confederacy basically, um, you know, it was such a rare circumstance and it allowed, because of that, Lincoln was able to appoint five justice um, right off the bat, which is very rare um, to be able to do that in a short amount of time um, like he did. So, I mean, it, it's really difficult to do it. And I think that's, and we look back to the last presidential election, I think, and especially talking to some Republicans I know, it was the Supreme Court vacancy is the reason why they went Republican. Mm. And, you know, they they don't like Trump. Uh, Some people did, but they voted. And I think the Democrats missed a point on that. And they could have campaigned harder on that, on that seat and the importance of that. Um, So, and now we're really seeing the importance of, you know, um, of that too. At the same time, though, there are two checks because you have to have a president nominate a judge and you have to have him confirm. So the people do get two chances to fix it as well. You know, so and so I always think of the quote, you know, uh, sometimes as democracy, you get the government you deserve. So, um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about that when the Supreme Court gets it wrong. How do you fix it? Um, and it takes time and it takes mm-hmm. drive and it takes grassroots. Um, it takes sometimes opinions to change, um, and, and it's very difficult. And, and I think people need to, I think that's the one branch that least people know about in America and understand and care about. But yet, in a lot of ways, it has probably more authority nowadays than what it did back then, I almost feel. Um, so it's been kind of difficult for me to wrap my head around thinking about all that, you know. Things like that. So, and, and I think both sides, you know, both sides gravitate and grab onto when the Supreme Court rules in our side's favor. We're like, hell yeah, that's it. That's final. Bam, nail in the coffin. But, you know, for Lincoln, that's how he viewed it. So, um, you know, the, the nail in the coffin, the one with the final say is that Constitution. Um, and, you know, sometimes looking back on that and reinterpreting a case will change stuff. So, I don't know. Thoughts on all that? I think that's, you raised some really good points there. And the one thing that I was thinking about is I think Lincoln learned a lot from the the Dred Scott decision, not just, you know, the decision itself, but that when he was president, he probably thought back to that quite a bit. And he learned that, and we'll see this with one of the people that he appointed, that 
he had to know how that person was going to think to uphold what he had done so that things would not go backwards in the country. Um, if that makes any sense, that he had to know the opinion of the person so that things don't, all that he had done, like the Emancipation Proclamation and other stuff would not, would that it would be upheld and it wouldn't go backwards. Yeah, and I think that, that that kind of reinforces Nick's point. Uh, we're lucky that Lincoln was the man who he was mm-hmm. uh, because um, when the South seceded, when the Confederacy seceded, a lot of his dissenting voices went with them, especially with regard to, to slavery and other things. Not, not all of them, obviously. There was a very strong Democratic Party that still opposed Lincoln, uh, but he had a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, support uh, potentially um, and he did, for the most part, uh, do things with good intentions. Um, habeas corpus we've obviously talked about. Uh, but I do think that that confirmation process is an important um, piece of the checks and balances puzzle. Um, it is, you know, and, and even they do have life terms for the most part. They can be impeached. It's never happened. It would be very rare. I believe it's never happened. It's very rare, but um, they, are, they are still one of nine. Um, voices, so you need a 5-4 majority. Um, right now we're at a very interesting crossroads in history because um, the court was 4-4 many times when, when the um, Republicans stole that, stole that nomination from um, President Obama um, for, the, for the better part of a year, um, and now it's going 5-4 the other way. So there's just, there are swing votes on there, and now there's going to potentially be not, not really 5-4, it might go 6-3 now. Um, so it's, it's definitely is a turning point. Um, interesting uh, historical facts about that. Um, there was a president uh, named Millard Fillmore who had a Supreme Court vacancy during his, um, his presidency. Um, he tried to nominate three different people, and the Senate did not confirm any of the three. Um, he tried a fourth, and the Senate did confirm that, Benjamin Robin Curtis. Justice Curtis was one of the two dissenting votes in the Dred Scott case, so he voted in the way history would kind of acknowledge in the right way, um, and he was the one who authored the very scathing dissenting voice, uh, the dissenting opinion in the Dred Scott case. So um, a little bit of good did come from the Miller Fillmore presidency, although uh, only because uh, Congress uh, said you're a dumbass three times to him. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, I'll listen to you guys. What a loser. Kate Fillmore. There you go. So, yeah. Any other president a third time would have at least been the charm. Not for Fillmore. It took him four. Four, yeah. So, four tries. Um, so, we talked quite a bit, uh, moving on from Dred Scott, um, the Lincoln's relationship with the Supreme Court. We kind of covered a little bit of that in the habeas corpus episode where uh, he largely ignored a lot of the Supreme Court decisions, um, which I think you can have a pretty compelling historic conversation about that. Like what, like, you know, everybody, you know, when you're teaching that, teaching your kind of senior, sophomore level government class, the legislative branch makes the laws, the executive branch enforces the laws, judicial branch interprets the laws. What do you do if the executive branch just doesn't accept that interpretation? There's really not a check per se, in place for Lincoln just to say, nope, we're still going to do it. Um, so other than people just kind of complying with what the courts say, well, now it would be absurd for the Supreme Court to say that you can't do this, and then someone else saying, like, no, nah, you know what, I think we're still going to do it um, because you've been court-ordered not to. So now I think there's a little bit more law enforcement in place, perhaps. But at the time, Lincoln just kind of ignored uh, admonishments on the habeas corpus thing, and, and really the Supreme Court... Uh, lost quite a lot of its strength in Lincoln's presidency, but he also appointed five justices in his presidency, which is extremely rare because he didn't serve more than, you know, he served a term plus a couple weeks. Um, So it was really, uh, really, you know, effectively a one-term president, um, at least in terms of time, and he did appoint five justices. Over half the court ended up at one time being appointed by Lincoln, which is well, pretty, pretty fascinating. shifted it from Democratic leaning towards Republican, I mean, mm-hmm. by himself. So usually, you know, it takes years to do that stuff. So, yeah, I mean, 
A lot of impact. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so Lincoln's first appointment um, uh, was Noah Haynes Swain, uh, so Associate Justice Swain, uh, who was said to have been the weakest of Lincoln's appointments. Uh, his main distinction was that he was a huge supporter of Lincoln's war measures, um, which, as far as Lincoln was concerned, was was pretty cool. So, uh, so he did appoint uh, Swain, um, who may have been the weakest, but kind of uh, pretty much gave the rubber stamp to Lincoln's war measures. Um, the second one he appointed was Samuel Freeman. Um, oh wait, hold on, did I skip one? I might have skipped one. Um, nope, I think you. Yep, you're good, Samuel. Samuel Freeman. Freeman. Yep. Isn't it Samuel Freeman Miller? Or That's no? it. Yes, Samuel. Yeah. yeah, I missed that on my notes here. Yeah. Samuel Freeman Miller. Uh, he nominated in 1862, uh, so the war had started that at that point. Um, the fascinating thing we talk about uh, how long it takes for confirmation processes. You could like uh, for Judge Gorsuch, um, not Gorsuch, uh, Merrick Garland. Um, just not get confirmed. They don't even don't even give them a vote. They just didn't even bring it to the Senate. Uh, Samuel Freeman Miller, however, uh, had such a good reputation. He was confirmed a half an hour after Lincoln nominated him. Uh-oh. So yeah, no technology, different era, and apparently they could have done things way more efficiently <laughs> then. Whereas now it uh, doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't even even with no brainers. It takes longer than that. Um, so they apparently didn't ask him any questions, didn't do anything. They just uh, gave him an up and down vote. Um, and both of these guys were, you know, anti-slavery and well, no, I mean, uh, Miller like grew up in Kentucky, anti-slavery caused problems. So he had to basically get out of there and go to Iowa. Um, so, which it shouldn't be that surprising, you know, being that it's the middle of the civil war. So of course the leakage probably go that way. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Um, and um, it's interesting to me that that all of these justices, um, they're kind of known for how they interpreted the 14th Amendment after Lincoln had passed in their careers later on, um, because I think that 14th Amendment gets cited so often in, in court cases, especially since it was so new. Um, Miller happened to have a very narrow reading of the 14th Amendment, um, which kind of limited the effectiveness of the amendment in many ways. Um but, uh, yeah, it was, you know, obviously that was something that Lincoln worked very hard on and then had no idea how the Supreme Court was going to interpret it. Uh, the third uh, nominee is a very, very important figure in Illinois history, David Davis. Um, went to the Supreme Court. He actually managed Lincoln's campaign in 1860. And this is very um, key to Lincoln's success, because remember in 1860, the, can- the candidates didn't campaign. So Lincoln stayed home um, and basically kind of responded to mail and maybe wrote the occasional article, but really it was it was considered impolite um, and improper to campaign for, for yourself. So David Davis's role as campaign manager was huge, much more um, uh, of a public kind of persona than campaign managers are now, although they're pretty public now too. Um, so, um, so uh, David Davis uh, was a he's from Bloomington, Illinois, which uh, where Nick got his bachelor's degree at Illinois State. Right. No go Redbird. 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 <laughs> most fierce and feared bird in the world is the Redbird, which is not a cardinal. <laughs> no, definitely not. Um, so he. Uh, Man, I screwed up my notes here. All right. Um, so David Davis um, was actually quite popular himself. Um, he um, was kind of looked at more than anyone else as an independent, which is interesting to me because he ran a campaign for a Republican for president that was successful. But he was very much looked at as an independent, very much a swing vote on the Supreme Court. Um, and he has the distinction. I, I doubt there's anyone else. I didn't actually look this up for 100 to be 100 percent, but. Uh, he went to the United States Senate after his Supreme Court career. Um, so he became a senator from Illinois just for one term. Uh, but because he was so widely viewed as an independent, uh, they gave him a lot of authority to make decisions. And he was actually elected to be the president pro tem of the Senate, uh, even though he was a freshman senator and only a one-termer, which is very, very rare. Now the president pro tem is um, the longest serving. 
they chose chose David Davis because he seemed uh, or he had the reputation at least of not being a party line person. You uh, know, David Davis too. I mean, going back to like having political aspirations. You know, we're not used to that. It's kind of like currently. It seems like the Supreme Court, all the justices. That's kind of the end game for them. For the five that he nominated, I believe four of them actually uh, were, you know, took part in the presidential nominations. I mean, uh, David Davis was the 1872 Labor Reform Party mm-hmm. presidential nominee. So all these people were extremely politically uh, active. You know, even Noah was looking to become chief justice and work in that angle, which probably isn't. Um, you probably still have a lot of that happens now in the Supreme Court. But David Davis, too, you know, he, he basically traveled the A circuit with Lincoln. They were friends. He helped him get nominated. And then he felt, I think, that he was going to have a key position in the cabinet. Mm-hmm. And Lincoln chose not to do that. And I and during doing some of my research, it seems to be that Davis had a little different perspective on what the Davis-Lincoln friendship was as opposed to Lincoln-Davis. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, Davis has passed over two other times for a Supreme Court nomination. Um, so kind of an interesting uh, look at the relationship that they have. Um, and I think Davis is a little bit hurt when Lincoln doesn't, you know, give him a more powerful position when he's elected. I, in the research I did, I found out that uh, Davis was part of one of the most profound decisions in Supreme Court history, the ex parte Milligan. I'm probably butchering that. But this was where the court set aside the death sentence that had been imposed during the Civil War by a military commission upon a civilian called, his name was Lambin, Lambin P. Milligan, and he'd been found guilty of um, causing insurrection. And the Supreme Court held that since civil courts were operative, the trial of a civilian by a military tribunal was unconstitutional. Yeah, and I think that's key, especially because the uh, the whole habeas corpus thing mm-hmm. with, yeah. you know, people, rabble-rousers and whatever you want to call it, um, kind of um, trying to encourage dissent and uh, undermining the war effort. Um, if he supported that, but then, yeah, his, his opinion on this was, I think, looked at as a, as a win for civil liberties uh, as far as uh, saving civilians from kind of military-style uh, death penalty cases. Um, and yeah, Nick, I think you also make a good point about Davis and Lincoln's relationship. Um, and and uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin writes about it quite a lot in Team of Rivals, where um, I think a lot of folks expected Lincoln to go with his friends because that was kind of the tradition uh, to the victors go the spoils, and they kind of fill the cabinet with their friends. Uh, and Lincoln tended to fill it with his rivals. Um, so that was kind of the foil to the whole rival dynamic mm-hmm. like if these folks were the rivals who were not the rivals it would have been people like davis um very much so davis ward hill layman probably too um who helped with the campaign quite a lot um lincoln did not go with them and, and i think that that probably upset them quite a bit you know he he did make good a little bit with davis um by making him a supreme court justice um later on um and then uh davis interestingly almost had to cast the deciding vote in the hayes tilden election because uh, yeah. the, the House of Representatives could not come to a consensus um, on who to elect in that one after there was no majority in the Electoral College. Um, and then, yeah, just a pretty fascinating figure that I think is often overlooked um, is David Davis. Uh, the next Supreme Court appointment that Lincoln had of his five was Stephen Johnson Field, uh, who was nominated uh, or confirmed um, on eight, in 1863 in March. Um this was actually to a 10th Supreme Court seat. Um, so he, um, for the court, the Constitution doesn't say that it has to be nine seats. It's now pretty well established that it's going to be nine ever since Franklin Roosevelt tried to pack it by increasing the numbers by quite a lot. Um, but he wanted to achieve regional balance with this one and political balance. So he nominated Field, who was a Democrat from California. Uh, he was on the California Supreme Court. So we don't often think about California being even in the equation, I think, in the Civil War time because it's, you know, it was so much on the frontier and you had to go through territories, you know, like you couldn't even go from a state to a state to a state. You had to go through territories because they weren't states yet um, to get to California. Uh, but someone being from uh, California, um, I think, was kind of kind of an interesting uh, appointment and he's trying to get some regional balance. Um 
and Field was a Democrat, but he was a Unionist, um, so kind of a moderate, uh, which obviously Lincoln probably understood quite well. Um, and uh, people still look at Field as um, this as a pioneer of this idea of substantive due process, um, which is now looked at by a lot of libertarians as a wonderful thing. And that's the notion that due process is protected by the 14th Amendment, and it is applied not merely to procedures, but to the substance of the laws as well. Um, a lot of people think of due process as just like you have to make sure that you follow the steps before you can take legal action against somebody through an arrest. Uh, but, there, but he looked at it as much broader than that, um, providing more uh, more protection for potentially the accused. Um, and then that was uh, kind of demonstrated in uh, Munn versus Illinois, among other cases. Um, so um, that was the fourth appointment, and then the fifth appointment was oh, to... Before we get to Chase, I found Fields to be very fascinating. Um, first off, he does become a serious contender for a Democratic presidential nominee in 1880 and 1884. So another one of these justice, you know, look into possibly um, transfer over the executive branch. But at one point he was charged with murder while serving on the Supreme Court. Wow. I came across. Wow, he... what are the details there? Ooh. So, all right, here's how this all takes place. So Fields eventually becomes California's chief justice in 1859. And the reason he gets this is because a guy by the name of David Terry, who held that position, steps down. And the reason he steps down is to engage in a duel with Senator David Broderick. Now, I'm not sure what the duel was over. So, you know, if one of the listeners had that, please feel free to email us. Uh, so basically he gets it. So this Terry guy will come back into the equation here. So this is why I mentioned this. Eventually, Terry will become a Confederate soldier. You know, Field will build the Supreme Court uh, seat, you know, uh, when Lincoln nominates him during the Civil War. Then there comes a lady, Sarah Hill. Sarah Hill has an affair with a Nevada senator, uh, William Sharon. Basically, this affair takes place. She creates some bogus paperwork, basically trying to extort him for money. So Sharon says, no, this isn't the case. So this goes on for about a seven-year legal battle. Eventually, Sharon will admit to the Nevada senator, will admit that he had this affair with Sarah. Um, but during the seven-year time period, Sarah Hill will marry David Terry. And David Terry will join her legal team. This goes back and forth. Eventually, it gets to the Supreme Court. September 1888, the Supreme Court uh, basically ruled about this. Field basically reads the opinion out loud. And I guess he had some harsh language towards Sarah. So Sarah and David Terry lose it in the chambers. Then Marshall basically comes in. You know, basically, they take Sarah, hold her in contempt. Kick her out. David Terry causes a brawl, basically, takes place. So you had this huge brawl takes place. They both go in jail. From jail, Terry keeps threatening um, uh, Justice Fields to the point where he gets actual security. 1889, Field is on his way to San Francisco. Terry and Sarah, David Terry and Sarah, happen to be on the same train. They figure out that Fields is there. David Terry goes up to Fields, slaps him in the face. The U.S. Marshal that's there feels that he's going for a weapon, so he shoots him in the head, kills him. And then what you have shortly after that, the U.S. Marshal and Justice Fields are arrested. Obviously, Fields' um, charge of murder is dropped. And then the U.S. Marshal will get caught up in the court system, and that will actually go to the Supreme Court. So basically, you have Fields has to recuse himself from that actual trial, uh, but eventually the U.S. Marshal is found innocent of murder, um, and then eventually Sarah Hill gets institutionalized for like the remaining uh, decade of her life. So just kind of a, a wild story there um, wow. of a Supreme Court justice who was once charged with murder. Wow. Um, so I came across that. I was very fascinated. Um, and this is crazy. And Fields also will break John Marshall's record as the longest-serving justice. 
uh, before he's there, which will eventually be broken by William O. Douglas, I believe. Yeah, so I thought that was interesting. That needs to be made into a movie. Yeah, yeah. Him that's, and, uh, wow, that's cool. Him and Thanks, Sickle, Sickles, the two uh, Civil War era figures. I was just, I <laughs> yeah. was just going to mention Sickles and the uh, temporary insanity thing. Although that one, I, I feel like Field had a little bit of a better argument uh, than Sickles. Yeah, Sickles, Field, Field does, Sickles pretty yeah. much killed a guy. That, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, then there's the thing with the Pete George too at Gettysburg. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Um, and then Lincoln's last appointment was when uh, we come full circle and we see the death of Roger B. Taney in 1864. Uh, and then Lincoln puts his last um, signature on the Supreme Court by appointing Salmon P. Chase, who was the Secretary of the Treasury, to the position of Chief Justice. This is extremely, extremely important because for a while there, Chase may have run against Lincoln in 1864 for the presidency. This was this is kind of pretty widely viewed as a stroke of political genius or one of the strokes of Lincoln's political genius where he eliminated a rival by giving him an appointment that he really couldn't refuse. So um, I don't know if Chase actually would have gone through with it and ran against Lincoln in 1864, but when he was appointed to be the Chief Justice of the United States, it was very much a done deal that that was not going to happen, um, and it kind of appeased Chase in a way to, um, for him to accept that he was not going to be the President of the United States. Um, however, uh, he did have quite a few positions of prominence, um, the last one being Chief Justice of the United States. The lead up to it, though, like there's other people that kind of like Edward Bates stepped forward and said to Lincoln that he wanted to be nominated as the crowning retiring honor of my life. And then Orville Browning encouraged Lincoln to appoint Stanton, who was Lincoln's secretary of war. And then finally, Francis Blair Sr. lobbied for his son Montgomery. Blair and uh, Blair Sr. said it would remove the cloud which his ostracism from your cabinet had brought upon him because Blair was forced to basically resign from his cabinet post as uh, Postmaster General. Um, but it was Charles Sumner who ends up nominating, um, or not nominating, recommending Chase Lincoln uh, for the, the Supreme Court. Yep, uh, Chase was not 100% appeased. He did still seek uh, the presidential nomination, um, ironically, on the Democrat side in 1868. He did not get it. Um, and then he did uh, also try on the liberal Republican side in 1872 and also did not get it, all the while still serving as Chief Justice um, until 1873. Um, you know, the funny part is all these... Out of the five, I think it was three or four ran for president, and none of them ran on the Republican ticket. Mm -hmm. So that's also kind of kind of odd and funny. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, so we are kind of pushing up against uh, our time here. So um, that was kind of a quick trip through Lincoln in the Supreme Court. Um, the importance of Dred Scott can't be understated, I don't believe. Um, and then, of course, he did have five nominees. So if you have any questions or comments about Lincoln and the Supreme Court, please uh, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RailsplitterPod. Um, and join the Facebook group, which now has well over 100 members. Um, and we got, I think, three or four new members this week. So welcome our new folks. Um, there's always good stuff being posted there, so we thank you for that. Our first weekly feature that we do every week is called Of the People by the People, where we talk about uh, social media posts that jumped out at us this week who would like to go first for that yeah i'll go first um this might be cheating but i have enjoyed uh watching mary tweet about gettysburg you know kind of um using yeah, basically a timeline so i know you were tweeting hey it's 11 40 here's what happened bam um so kind of nice to have that come across on social media think about it a little bit so thought it was a clever idea um, I liked it. I'm sure many of your followers did. So, um, yeah. So, if you're not following Mary, you need to. <laughs> yeah, next awesome. I, yeah, Mary, you, what, what is your Twitter handle for our listeners? Um, it is Miss underscore Bellatrix um, and Civil War fangirl. 
She's by far the most popular of the rail splitters. No joke. Uh, <laughs> and then Nick, is, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, Icky Tangy. So, I don't know. At Icky Tangy, if you're looking for any tweets. At um, Tangy Icky. Tangy That's Icky. T a n g y i c k y. Yeah. Um, yeah and then go. I tweet mostly from the Rail Splitter Pod account. I have a work account that used to be a personal account that I kind of changed recently. Which is my first and last name at Jeremy Boyce. If you really want to see some stuff about, uh, you know, education and whatnot, uh, Mary, what did you have for this week for of the people by the people? Um, I had one that Dave Taylor Boothy Barn tweeted two days ago, um, and he tagged the real splitter pod in it, and he said, "I think a group of Lincolns should be termed a link a union of Lincolns." What's your idea? And I just thought that was a really uh, cool thing. So, and I agreed with them. Yeah, like a group of Lincoln should be called a union of Lincolns. And it was he was retweeting um, an article by Michael Lynch that was "Pod of Wales, Conspiracy of Lemurs, Parliament of Owls." What's the term for a grouping of Lincolns? That's awesome. It's got to be a union. Yeah, I thought that was very cool. Yep. Well done. Thank you, Dave. Uh, mine is also from a former guest on the show, from Dr. Stacy, just because I thought that this was interesting. Uh, yesterday, she tweeted uh, one of those hashtags, OTD, hashtag on this day. Uh, on this day in 1863, Mary Lincoln was injured in a carriage accident, suffering serious bruises. She may have been more gra- gravely injured had she not had the guts to jump out of the runway carriage. And then this is my favorite part. Abraham Lincoln's wife was a badass. <laughs> Uh, and then she also uh, tagged a newspaper article. Uh, so thank you for that one, Dr. Stacy. I like that on this day. The reason it kind of jumped out at me, I like the badass line, but also uh, that was, what, July 2nd of 1863. So uh, Mary Lincoln almost or could have potentially died within a day or two of Vicksburg and Gettysburg, um, those two victories being solidified. Um, and I will just point out that the tweet before that uh, from Dr. Stacy says, uh, the hashtag St. Louis Cardinals suck, and then she talks about it a little more. She's a, a Cardinal fan, but I just like any tweet that says that the Cardinals suck because uh, <laughs> I can agree, Doctor Stacy. If you're listening, I agree. Abraham Lincoln's wife was a badass. I also agree that the Cardinals suck. Um, go Cubs! So uh, we do. Do either of you have a this week in Lincoln? Do we need to? Sure. We do it every week. Uh, I did buy, a, I did an impulse buy, which I rarely do, but I was at our local grocery store uh, and I picked up a shirt that has Abraham Lincoln with American flag sunglasses and a solo cup full of beer oh, yeah. that I plan on wearing for America's birthday, That's awesome. July 4th. So uh, tomorrow um, I have uh, a party called the AFY party, America F Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to wear my Lincoln with a beer shirt. So, um, anyway, happy birthday, America. Hope you enjoy my Abraham Lincoln t-shirt. Awesome. Um, and I'm looking forward to getting up super early the very next day and driving my family to Gettysburg. So, I'll try to get some stuff recorded from there. Um, I'm also going to travel to Richmond, uh, where um, I think we'll probably just go to the State House, but we might do some other Civil War sites there. Um, I don't think I'll make go sure to... you wear the Abraham Lincoln shirt in Richmond. I yeah. will. Did I ever tell you Set my Richmond? Message. Did yeah. I ever tell you my Richmond story? Have I talked about this on the show? I don't think so. In 1989, I'll try to be quick. In 1989, I went to uh, with my family to a bunch of Civil War battlefields, which was a very formative experience in my development as a student of history and a fan of Abraham Lincoln in the Civil War. But uh, I went to the Confederate White House and I bought a little Union soldier hat. Uh, because I was going to be a Union soldier for Halloween that year because I was the coolest kid on the block, obviously. (laughs) Um, So I was wearing a Union uh, cap in the Confederate White House, and as I remember it, a giant of a man uh, walked up to me, stuck his finger out right in, he didn't touch me, but he put his finger like right in my chest, and he said, you got the wrong head on, boy. And it scared the crap out of me. Uh, and I immediately took the hat off and um, was really, really scared. Uh, and then I uh, remembered that, oh, wait, um, how'd that work out for you? So uh, that was my, that's my Richmond story. So I'm going to go back and I'm going to try to find that guy because he's probably in his 70s now. Um, and just put, I'm just going to put the hat back on. So, uh, but yeah, that was at the Confederate White House in Richmond, Virginia. So um, 
that was an interesting experience. So, wow. um, yes. Uh, and then one of the real, no, nah, I'll tell my other Richmond story later. It's pretty funny though. Um, so anyway, uh, any, any other parting thoughts here before we end the show for the week? Well, first of all, I just want to thank Nick for the kind words about my tweets about Gettysburg and also just thank you to all our listeners for listening to us every week. And you guys are why we're here. I agree. Yeah. I agree on both counts. That you might be the most popular, but you're not everybody's favorite. <laughs> oh, <laughs> hashtag Team Nick. Hashtag the other two. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, that is right. So, um, well, we went a little over our target for an hour, but that was okay because I really enjoyed the conversation about the Supreme Court and our weekly features. So, thank you all for tuning in, and I would like to. Uh, also say what Mary said when we we only exist because of our listeners so thank you thank you thank you please actually don't wait I hope you enjoyed your fourth of July holiday and you continue to enjoy and stay safe on your summer travels here in July and if uh, you're looking for somewhere to go Springfield Illinois is always lovely Civil War battlefields all that kind of stuff tell us about it on social media we'd love to hear uh, for Rail Splitter Mary and Rail Splitter Nick I am Rail Splitter Jeremy reminding you to continue to walk the world with malice toward none and charity for all and we will see you next week.